to be in Hebrews chapter 12 today. Uh, before we get there, as a means of introduction, I've got uh, good news and bad news. The good news is that you have made it into the Hall of Fame. Everyone of you did. Uh, the bad news is that it's not the basketball Hall of Fame, not the football Hall of Fame, not the baseball Hall of Fame, or even the rock and roll Hall of Fame. But if you got inducted into a Hall of Fame, which one would you be inducted into? Maybe that would be a good kind of driving home conversation or a fun discussion to have over dinner. Everyone in your family each are inducted into some kind of Hall of Fame. Which one is yours? Um, if I had to choose some, uh, Arden Nolting, you would be in the Stroganoff Hall of Fame. This woman makes the meanest stroganoff. When I eat her stroganoff, I have to be careful. You know, the body is something like 70% water. By the end of the meal, I'm like 65% stroganoff at least. And so I have to be careful. Um, I think my wife would definitely make it into the Mother's Hall of Fame. She is the best mother that I know of. No offense, Mom. Uh, I just realized my mom is here in the room too. <laughs> you would be in there too, Mom. You would be in the Hall of Fame too. But what Hall of Fame would you make it into? Our passage today in Hebrews chapter 12 is actually preceded in chapter 11 by what is commonly called the Hall of Faith. In it we see bastions of the faith. Therein we see stellar examples of faithful people, each, each of them highlighted by a different example of their faith that is borne out through the unique circumstances that are present in their life. In this group of people, we see faith on display. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 says that we are currently, you and I, surrounded by these faithful folks like an all-encompassing cloud, like a, a foggy mist that's so, so thick, it's thick as soup, and each suspended droplet of water in the air represents a heroic deed, a faithful act, a, a trusting prayer, a belief that produced action. And as we go about our day, if we run our race, the cloud of folks around us are not our focal point. What is our focal point? Read with me, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. And here we find the first of three Jesus-centric exhortations in Hebrews chapter 12. And these three exhortations will aid you in your race and they will bring you to a finish line that concludes in your hall of faith. You will be faithful. You will be counted among these esteemed men and women of God if you are obedient to these three Jesus-centric exhortations. And the first one is, you must Look to Jesus. Our annual theme that we introduced last week and that we're looking through this entire year is seeing Jesus in all of Scripture. Seeing Jesus in all of our trials. Seeing Jesus in every temptation. Seeing Jesus in every victory. Seeing Jesus in every growth point. In everything that we do, we're going to be looking to Jesus. And so here we start, of course, with look to Jesus. 
We have the Im imagery of a race. We're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. So think of just a, a, a typical track, a, a quarter mile long, and you've got the entire stadium built around it. And all those saints that went before us are in the stands. They're looking down at us. They're cheering us on. And you know if you're a runner, the runner doesn't look at the audience. The runner doesn't look at the fans. Where does the runner look? He looks at whoever's in first place. He's trying to catch that guy. And the difference between a physical race and a spiritual race is Jesus is the one in first place. And we're not trying to beat him. We're just trying to follow him. We're trying to pace him. We're trying to go where he has gone. We keep our eyes on Jesus. And even if we were to look at the crowd in each face and behind every shout and at each seat, if you look closely enough, in each of these people that make this all-encompassing cloud, in them you also would see Jesus. Part of what we're going to be doing this year is we're going to be going throughout the Old Testament and seeing types of Jesus. Now a type is it's an intentional foreshadowing where you see a person and they live their life in such a way it was recorded in such a way that it pointed to the coming Messiah. And we're going to be trying to be careful in this. You know, we don't want to make it a game where you just try to make every single detail point to Jesus. I remember when I was in seminary, there was someone that said, they, were, they asked if you had spiritual eyes. They said, do you have the spiritual eyes to see Jesus in the Old Testament? And I said, I think I, think I can do it. You know, where, where are you looking? And he said, well, look in Abraham, he went to some passage where it described Abraham's journey. He went from west to east, and then he went from south to north. And what is that? Look, that's a cross. And so you see Jesus there in his journey. We're not going to be playing kind of silly games like that, trying to decode Scripture. When I think of a type of Christ in the Old Testament, what I want to do is I want to put myself in the sandals of a first century Jew that hasn't met Christ yet, but is just about to. And I want to see what he reads in his devotions as he goes through the Old Testament, he goes through the Pentateuch and the prophets, and he's going to see clues dropped in a plan that's almost completely fulfilled, but not quite. And he's going to find the solutions in Jesus. He's going to feel that tension of, man, we, we give these sacrifices every single week and annually, but where does it end? Are we just going to constantly do this? And then he would see Jesus, and John the Baptist would say, Behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. And then it would click off. All those sacrifices were pointing to Jesus. Those are the kinds of types that I want to explore. And even in this hall of faith, as we look through these names, we can see examples, questions, problems, all solved in Jesus. In Abel, Enoch, and Noah, for instance, we see the example of Christ's worship, his walk, and his deliverance from sin. Abel, it says, uh, he had a more acceptable sacrifice. You recall the story where his brother sacrificed vegetables, but that wasn't what was required. It was that an animal sacrifice was required. And so Abel sacrificed something that shed blood, and it says he was commended for it. Because the sacrifice was better. You could just go back and look through Hebrews chapter 10 and see that point driven home hard that Jesus offered a better sacrifice than all the animals that could have been offered. 
And so we see Jesus in Abel. We see Jesus in Enoch. That first century Jew might have looked at the life of Enoch and thought, is it possible for me to walk with God the way Enoch walked with God? Could I really have that kind of relationship with God so unencumbered by this world that when it comes to the end of my life, I don't even die. I just go right through death and I'm just taken up. And then perhaps he would hear Jesus, as recorded in John chapter 8, verse 51. And Jesus said, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And that first century Jew would say, oh, this guy is keyed in. He knew what I was wondering about Enoch. And now he's telling me how I can follow in Enoch's footsteps. Enoch's life was pointing to Jesus. Of course, in Noah, we see the deliverance from sin. In 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse 11, it says that the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets as they prophesied. And Noah was a prophet. In 2 Peter uh, verse, chapter 2 and verse 5, we see the picture of Noah bringing, Noah being saved through the judgment. In that first century Jew, if a judgment were to happen today, how would I be saved? Where's my heart? Who is my Noah? And then Jesus would come and he would introduce him to salvation. In Abraham, we see the promise was made. Paul makes it clear the promise was made. The covenant was made not just to Abraham, but to Abraham and his offspring. Offspring being singular. So the promise was made, was made to Abraham and to Jesus. In Sarah, we see this impossible birth that came through a promise of God for a chosen child. You go back and you look at, read Luke chapter 1. The Magnificat, that Mary praises and prays to God, and she concludes recognizing her connection to the Abrahamic covenant. She recognized that she was, in a sense, uh, foreshadowed by Sarah. And in Joseph, we see a ruler, a provider, a deliverer, a brother, a son of Israel, abused raised from the dead, so to speak, as well. Jacob, of course, the chosen one, he received the name Israel, which means contends with God. He got that name when he wrestled with God all night. Moses identified himself in Deuteronomy 18. He said, there's going to come a prophet like me from among you, and God will put his words in his mouth. And so again and again and again, we see all these men and women of faith pointing to Jesus, anticipating the perfect one who was to come. And of course, that brings us to chapter 12 and verse 1. So even in this cloud, we look to Jesus, but in looking to Jesus, it starts with, uh, verse 1 starts with the word, therefore, you can write this in the line above it if you've got a pen small enough, consequently, so having observed all these people, recognizing that they led a life of faith, they surround us, and that their journey was incomplete until we joined them, consequently, we too need to run the race like they ran the race, looking to Jesus. So we see the words, looking to Jesus in verse 2, and, and that qualifies all the commands in verse 1. So as we look to Jesus, we set aside every sin which clings to us, Closely, what is what are the things that cling to us? Have you ever been maybe uh, some of you younger people been on a date, or you went to school, or maybe you go to work and you're like, man, I got a tickle. There's a spider in here. Like, oh, oh, that's a that's a dryer sheet. That's 
something that clings to us. Or maybe you're going and I'm like, tying my shoe, and you go tie it when you're wearing shoes instead of boots, and oh, it's a sock. One of Sophie's socks are in here. Thank goodness it's just a sock and not something else. And uh, these are things that cling to us. I didn't put them there. They just, they're in the house, they're around, they went unnoticed. Those are like the sins in our life that cling to us. They're around us, they go unnoticed, but we carry them with us. And he's saying, if you're going to run this race the way that all they ran, that they ran the race, if you're going to run the race like Christ ran the race, if you're going to be looking to Jesus, you are going to be setting aside every sin. And not just the sin, but also laying aside the weights. These are sometimes more difficult, I think, because it's not necessarily a sin that you're laying aside. When I think of a weight, I think of a habit, distractions, diversions. It's just anything that impedes our acceleration or our progress. And they're difficult to suss out because you can't put your finger on a verse and say, look, that says what you're doing is a sin. This is just us. We just have to determine. This is slowing me down. I think of what Paul told Timothy. He said, you're a soldier. And a good soldier doesn't get entangled in civilian affairs because he's got to please the one who enlisted him. And so you're looking at, you're getting, you're purging things from your life that just aren't the best. They're not even sins, they're just not the best thing for your edification and for your discipleship and your progress and your race. Notice it says, laying aside with every sin and weight and running with endurance the race. Endurance is required. And he gives the example, when we look in, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, we see examples of endurance. People that feel like they never reached the finish line in their lifetime. Sometimes we think if we're tired, we're doing something wrong. What this tells us is, if you're tired, you're doing it right. I remember when I used to run cross country, I never really applied myself the best. And I remember one time my dad asked him, he's like, you know, Ryan, you get to the end in the shoot, you're all standing there in line, and like in front of you is a guy that's throwing up, and behind you is the guy that looks like he's about ready to fall over, he's pale, all the blood's draining from his face, and you look like you're ready for a cheeseburger. What, what's going on? You don't look like you've exhausted yourself. If we're running this spiritual race, it's, it's going to be exhausting. It's going to require endurance. we got to keep on going. And, and notice one more thing before we move on. He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Notice that your course has been chosen by God. Your course is not my course. Aaron's course is not Amanda's course. Your course is chosen by God and set before you. We see Jesus has a different course as well. Verse 2, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He had a cross to bear. You have a cross to bear. Whatever suffering it is, we just cannot buy into the satanic lie that this wasn't supposed to be. This is brokenness that I'm not supposed to endure. This is a race that was set before you. And God put you on that track for a reason because he designed that track as an apparatus for you to display his glory. He knew that this path, as uncomfortable as it might be and as difficult as it might be, it's the one that's going to lead you best to Christ. 
We don't want to envy someone else's track. And sometimes other people's tracks looks more smooth to us than ours. But if we were on it, we'd see the ruts and the bumps that are theirs to bear. We have powers to bear. And we must endure laying aside the weights and the sins that cling to us. This brings us to the second Jesus-centric exhortation to help us run a race and finish in the Hall of Faith. Look at verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So we must look to Jesus and we must consider Jesus. It says it right there. Consider him. That means we need to contemplate, estimate, ponder, aim, weigh out, measure out how he did it, and then we put it in our lives, you know? Having the recipe isn't the end. It's not the conclusion. That's just the beginning. Anyone here ever watch uh, Gordon Ramsay make food on YouTube or on TV? I've, I've been wanting. I didn't do it last year, but this year I'm going to do it. I'm going to make a beef wellington. It just seems like such a Christmas meal to make, and so I'm going to do it. I've got his instructions, but that doesn't mean it's done just because I have the instructions. I have to take what he's laid out. And then I've got to actually measure these things out. I've got to fit it for my family. I'm not making it for a restaurant or a single serving. I'm making it for a family. And I've got to measure it out and weigh it out. And I've got to do all of that on my own so it fits in my kitchen and with my skill set. And in the same way, we look to Jesus. And then we consider Jesus. And we think, okay, so how did what Jesus did, how does that fit into my life? How, for instance... Did he pray? Do we have examples of how Jesus prayed? Sure, we can, we can see that. How did Jesus handle scripture? How did Jesus endure temptations? Do we have examples that we can fit that into our life? How did Jesus approach really bad sinners? What does that tell me about how I approach sinners? How did Jesus value children? How did Jesus treat his mother? All of these things that we see in life of Jesus and we ponder it, we consider it, we weigh it out. The word means to reason with careful deliberation. How did he respond to abuse in his life? And that's the primary context here. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You consider how he did it so that you don't grow faint-hearted and weary in your race. Look at verse 11 through 17. We see, he says, For the the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. So that's that's our race. We're walking, we're, we're running the race that God set before us, and most times it feels painful. In fact, look at use the word in verse 4, struggle, in your struggle against sin. Again, I just want to repeat, if you're struggling with sin, Satan is whispering in your ear, that's because you're a bad Christian. That's why you struggle with sin. This says, it's expected. You're going to struggle. It better be a struggle. If it's not a struggle, you're doing something wrong. You're probably conceding to it or lying to it if there's not a struggle with sin. But in that moment, it seems too much to bear. It seems painful rather than pleasant. Back in verse 11. But later, it leads, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, this is how, when we contemplate Jesus and we see how he suffered and how he uh, 
resisted sin by observing him, contemplating him, measuring that out. Here's what happens. Verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. When he made the value judgment in his life, he preferred to have that momentary satisfaction, the bowl of porridge that would be consumed and then gone forever. He chose that instead of the eternal heritage that was his to inherit. And Paul's saying, don't you do the same thing. Don't you eat that bowl of porridge the pornography on the internet, sexual immorality, the lust that you have for someone else. He uses that example specifically, sexual immorality. He says it's a bowl of porridge. And at the end of your life, if you've chosen that porridge your entire life, there's no number of tears that's going to make you all of a sudden a recipient of the covenant. You've made your choice. And so to prevent that, to strengthen our weak knees, to lift up our drooping heads and hands, we must consider Jesus. We look to Jesus. We consider Jesus. And then thirdly, this last Jesus-centric exhortation, we come to Jesus. This is where we landed last week, coming to Jesus. This is your come to Jesus moment. We're going to provide a time here in a few minutes to really visualize this, how we come to Jesus. But let's look at it, starting in verse 18. He says, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and a gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words are made, whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. They're talking about the Israelites that first came to the mount and God's glory was upon it. It was fierce, and it was a storm, and there was fire, and they covered their ears. They could not bear to hear the voice of God. He's saying, that's not how you come. You're not coming to Jesus in a physical way. You're coming in a spiritual way. He says, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Remember, they had to build this fence all the way around the base of the mountain because if anyone touched it, they would die. He said, even if an animal gets loose and goes on that mountain, I'm going to kill the animal too. He says, that's not how you come to Christ. We're not coming to him physically. We're coming spiritually. We're not coming to Christ uh, legally, but rather he comes and he gives life. We're not coming to Christ in fear, but his perfect fear casts out love. But that's how they came. Says verse 21, indeed so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you come in a different way. We don't come with fear. We don't come at risk of losing our life. We come to gain life. We don't come physically, we come spiritually. Look what we come to, he says, but you come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and 
to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So we come in among God's holy and chosen people. We come and we're accepted in. No one wants to be an outsider. Most people don't want to be an outsider. We like to be accepted. And he's saying, come in. You're accepted. You're among all these accepted people. He says, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And, verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkle of blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So now this gives us a little more clarity on how we come to Jesus. God is a judge. He's a determining one. And he sees those who are worthy and those who are unworthy. And our temptation is to try to get into that worthy category. I want to try to purge that sin from my life so that I come to Christ in an acceptable way. But that's not what we see here. We see Christ as a mediator of a new covenant. We see blood that is sprinkling and is, is offering a better word than that sacrifice that Abel made. So we have the temptation to try to purify ourselves so that we come to Christ. But he's saying here, if you're coming to Christ, you come as you are. You're in that unworthy category. That's how you come. And when you come, you find Christ as a mediator. And he mediates between you and the judge. You will find that when you come, he sprinkles you with the purifying blood that was shed on your behalf. So we come unqualified and we are qualified in him. We come unworthy and we are made worthy. We come unpure and we are made pure. And this coming is, I, I believe this coming is continual. Again and again, every morning we wake up and we come to Jesus. And we know that the sacrifice is eternal, one sacrifice forever. But this is why we come and we do communion as well. We come and do communion because that's us recognizing, that's us testifying, it's us preaching to one another, but more than anything else, preaching to ourselves. This is me constantly coming to Christ for the purifying effects of His blood, for the life-giving, healing effects of His body that was broken for me. So I'm going to ask uh, our elders to come.